HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network, a show about food, culture, identity, and politics. I am your host, Sari Kamen. Happy Valentine's Day to all of my listeners out there. For our special Valentine's Day episode, which is not a special Valentine's Day episode at all, uh, I have Priya Krishna on the show. Um, she is a food writer whose prolific work covers the culinary world, and she brings Indian food culture to the forefront. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Bon Appetit, among many others. And her next cookbook, Indian-ish, is about her mother, whom she calls an Indian food genius. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's it's Priya, actually. Oh, I'm so sorry. And <laughs> no I just problem. asked you that. Yes. Um, it's been a long day. Thank you, Priya. Thank you for coming on the show today and spending some of your Valentine's Day as my date. Of course. <laughs> I'm happy to. Um, so tell us a little bit about... You're from Texas, yes? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and your parents are immigrants from India? Yes. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what it was like to grow up in Texas. You know, it's funny because when people, pe first of all, people never think that I'm from Texas. That's the last place that they guess. And then when they do, they're like, what was that like growing up mm -hmm. in this really Southern place? But to be very honest, I lived sort of within this suburban bubble. Like my county was really liberal. My school was really liberal. We, my family hung out mostly with other Indians. It just, it, it didn't feel like the Texas that a lot of people People know it to be really like conservative, lots of cowboys, very Southern. Um, I didn't have Texas barbecue until I was 23 years old and on a business trip in Austin. Um, so it was definitely a very unconventional Texas upbringing. But then being in New York, I notice certain Texan things in myself. Like I hate when 
restaurants charge for chips and salsa in Texas. That's just not a thing. <laughs> it shouldn't be a thing here either. <laughs> that's something I would agree with Texas on. I can't think of many things, but that's yeah. That's complimentary right. chips and salsa, people. Just do it. Universal health care, universal chips and salsa. <laughs> Um, so first of all, I want to congratulate you on your IACP nomination, which just happened. Thank you. That is just an amazing accomplishment. Um, and you wrote this wonderful piece for Bon Appetit about the Patel brothers grocery store. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so, uh, that was an interesting story because like many of my stories, it was my, my dad's idea. He always comes to me will call me with breathlessly with these story ideas. And more often than not, those turn out to be some of my best stories. And my dad has been going to Patel Brothers since it opened in Dallas. It's this like amazing grocery store that's basically, you know, done to Indian grocery shopping. What, uh, you know, a place like um, Wegmans did to American grocery shopping. You know, it made it really standardized, affordable, easy to find, really intuitive, really accessible. And I think more importantly than making it, you know, a really great place for Indians to shop, it's a really great place for non-Indians to shop and still be able to find whatever they need. Everything's like very organized. Everything's explained in English and Hindi. And so when we're talking about um, places that sort of help to advance Indian culture and perhaps make it more mainstream and understood, I think Patel Brothers is a huge part of that conversation. And, you know, they're, they're a national grocery store chain. They've got locations all across the U.S. They're their products. They own a, a, a product brand called Swath Foods, which are literally even sold in India. So like this Indian grocery store in America is like selling products to India because they're so good. And I was just so blown away by the stories that people were, were telling me about how the products they get at Patel Brothers are better than what they find in India. And just the way that that place has resonated with Indians and, and non-Indians alike was really special. So I was excited that the IACP recognized it. I didn't even know it was it was submitted. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Is there something like, like a little bit heartbreaking about um, you know, hearing stories about how products at Patel Brothers are better than like the actual Indian version. Like there's something about, you know, globalization sometimes where you're like, oh, it kind of sucks that like I don't have to go to India or France or wherever anymore to like find this very unique and special thing. Well, if, yeah, of course, <laughs> I, I definitely feel that way. Um, but on the other hand, um, the, what the founder told me is that in India, a lot of the products, like their health standards, their sort of... Um, just yeah, mostly the health standards just like aren't that high. Whereas in America, the the health standards are a lot stricter. The codes are a lot more stringent. So you end up getting things that are probably a little bit safer to consume. So I feel like that's something I can I can get behind. But there definitely is that feeling of of nostalgia. There's still certain things that you can only find in India that you'll you'll never be able to get that same quality in America. So I think that will always be there. I hope that's the case. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I mean, how does a place like that, like Patel Brothers sort of change, um, you know, the, the non-Indian consumers understanding of what Indian food is? I think it just makes it seem really accessible. Like when everything is organized the same way an American grocery store is organized, when everything is clearly labeled, when things are in a language that you understand, it's just like a real game changer. And the Indian grocery stores used to go before even as someone who understands mostly Hindi, like I would get confused, you know, stuff would be thrown on the floor, 
the employees weren't actually there to help you. Produce would be like a total mess. They were just like these really disorganized, chaotic stores, and there just like wasn't a real understanding of um, of customer service. So I think at the base level, Patel Brothers just like it pr- do- provides like the base needs of a grocery store. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, last week on the show, I had a, a, another food writer, Mayuk Sen, and he was talking about like how most Americans perceive Indian food as a monolith. And I would hope that a place like Patel Brothers um, is able to sort of add nuance to the conversation of what Indian food can be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just came off of, um, I had about 120 people test recipes for my cookbook. And of course, a lot of them had to go shopping for spices and ingredients. And a lot of the feedback I got was like, you know, places like Patel Brothers and Kloostians make it so easy to shop for Indian ingredients. I thought this was going to be so much harder. I thought Indian food was one thing. And this has really changed my perspective. So that's exciting to hear. Yeah. Have you always been into food? Uh, yes, yes. There, <laughs> there is never a waking moment in my life where I can't remember food sort of at least being occupying like 10 to 20 percent of my mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you're, you're doing a cookbook now and it's all about your mother's recipes. And uh, I want to get to that a little bit later. But um, I was reading this piece, this lovely piece that you wrote in Sever about how your mother would make mashup foods. And it remind, um, you know, foods that she grew up with in India and it was sort of like, it's sort of a combination of the foods from her childhood, um, mashed up with American ingredients. Like I think you mentioned, uh, pizza with roti bread or sandwiches with curry leaves. And it reminded me of, uh, a, an article that Solejo wrote for taste mm-hmm. called assimilation food. I was wondering yeah. if you'd read that. I had, it's a great, great story. Yeah, it is a great story. Um, and I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that and how that sort of uh, affected your your framework and your reference for what Indian food was like growing up as American in Texas with immigrant parents. It just feels to me like just only natural and what every immigrant does. I don't know a single um, immig- like child of immigrants whose parents sort of don't have a roughly similar story of like they came to this country, they knew how to cook a certain way, but they, you know, were facing a totally different country with different cuisine, different ingredients, different grocery stores. And so they just had to adapt. And that's where this really amazing innovation comes out. That's, that's how like modern American food is constructed. And so to me, when I think of my mom making pizza with roti bread or crusting our sandwiches with fried curry leaves or making sag paneer with feta instead of paneer because she couldn't find it, I think that is sort of the kind of food that we are moving towards. Mm -hmm. I think that if you look in like two generations from now, all food will be sort of mixed up and mashed up. I mean, even if you look at, you know, cuisines that we see as like very essential, like uh, Italian food or, uh, or, or Mexican food, it's all sort of like mashups of different cultures. That's just sort of how, you know, waves of immigration happen and affect food. So, uh, one thing that I th- thought was really important was um, in the subhead calling our food American because, you know, just because we're not making burgers and steak and fried chicken at home doesn't mean we're not American. I hate when <laughs> people conflate the word American with white people. That drives me crazy. I mean, to me, like, this is what American food is like I grew up in America and the food that I ate in America were these really awesome mashup dishes. And so 
I don't know. I I think it's really exciting. I love hearing other friends tell me about the the, the dishes that their their parents made, and I just don't think this is a unique phenomenon, but it is an exciting one. Yeah, I don't think it's unique at all. Um, but did it take you a while to sort of come to that conclusion that these were really awesome foods that your mom was making you? Because I think you mentioned in that same piece that there was a bit of resentment at some point that, you know, you would go to friends' houses and the food was really different and, you know, you had to, like, sit at the table and have a meal and you couldn't, like, eat in your room like your other friends could and there's a little bit of, I don't know, resentment is the word, but there was an understanding that there was something different. Of course. Whenever you're a minority in any way, you sort of crave whatever the majority has. And for me, you know, the majority was my friends who are primarily um, white and Jewish and, you know, ate certain things for dinner that that we did not. And so I, you know, I remember <laughs> it being Passover and me being like, mom, like, why aren't we eating matzah like everyone else? Oh, and she was funny. just like, we're not Jewish. We don't celebrate Passover. But like the norm to me was like Passover. And I was just like, we need to be having like, you know, matzah with locks like everyone else. Like, why are we having dal chowl? <laughs> That's hysterical. You, you, you didn't understand like there was a disconnect that you weren't Jewish or, or that you didn't understand that they were Jewish. It just was the normal thing. Yeah, I just I just craved normalcy and I was one of just a couple Indian kids in my grade and so just like everything that we did felt so alien and different and I hated having to explain it to people and I preferred to just try and fit in as much as possible so I didn't have to explain but now I'm sort of swung all the way to the other side I've just like leaned into these differences that's sort of what I base my writing you have a career around it yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I grew up the daughter of a rabbi, um, and there were a lot of other Jews around, but because I didn't have a choice in the matter, like mm-hmm. I had to go to temple and I had to go to, you know, participate in holidays, I was always so resentful of it. And I didn't make like that many specific connections to food at the time. I just knew that like whatever it was I had to do was what I didn't want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so on the on the other side of the coin. Um, so how did you come to this place in your writing career where you, not not primarily necessarily, but you, a lot of your pieces are about sort of uncovering immigrant stories, like specifically these like hidden pockets throughout America where there's these really vibrant Indian communities and shining a light on them. Yeah. I mean, well, one, you, you write what you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but I obviously don't want to put myself in a box where I'm only writing about Indian food because that's not the only thing that interests me. But you know, after the election, I sort of had a, I had the sort of moment where I I started thinking about like whose stories I wanted to be telling and whose stories like deserved most to be telling. And for me, that was, you know, women, people of color, immigrants, members of the queer community. And so I just decided that I was going to focus like 95% of my writing efforts on these. Like when I do a profile, it's pretty much never going to be about a white dude. When I pitch a story to a big publication like the New York Times, it's, you know, probably going to be about a minority or an immigrant or a person or, or a woman or, or any combination of those things, just because I think those voices are just perennially underrepresented in media. And I just want to be that, that small person who's just slowly pushing the boulder up the wall and, 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 and getting them the representation they deserve. Yeah. And it's so nice that there are writers like you and Mayuk, for example, because now that there are more and more stories coming forward that are representing under written about communities, I think that audiences are realizing how deprived that they've been and are just hungry for more stories like that. So it's great that more people want to talk about it because I think more people want to listen at the same time. 
Yeah, totally. I'm I'm reading um, Gabrielle Union's memoir. She's this like amazing actress, and I just read this chapter about how like only now we're realizing that Friends was totally white, and there were only two black people ever on the show. Oh, that's which so is funny. just astonishing. Yeah, and like there was really no one. There was no one calling. I mean, I'm sure there was people trying to call it out at the time, but nobody was listening. Yeah. There was no no one to amplify those voices. <sighs> um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about your mom, who you said was never a train cook in India, which was unusual, and was an engineer and kind of broke many molds, um, and then was a prolific cook who inspired you to write a to now write a cookbook. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you've got you've got most of the story down there. I mean, <laughs> well, she, I she, hear it in your words, she grew up in um in a, in a town outside Delhi. She had two brothers. She always tells me stories about how when people would come out of come from out of town, they would give her brothers gifts and they wouldn't give her anything. And it was sort of this very sexist society. But my grandmother, my mom's mom, was sort of this this ahead of her time feminist who you know really didn't want to spend her whole her whole day in the kitchen. So she just she didn't she didn't really have an interest in cooking she she wanted to be a lawyer she she never could because you know the society just wasn't advanced at the time but but my mom really was inspired by that and you know but but what she did really like was cooking and so she would go over to her grandmother's place and just watch her cook and then when she immigrated to america she had all these memories of her grandmother's cooking but but no techniques that she'd learned um and then she was in a new place she got hired as um a software engineer for an airline company and she got to travel the world as a result and you know this was all when she was in her 20s like right before she had kids so when she had us and she had to feed us she sort of developed this cuisine that was that was all her own it was rooted in Indian flavors but it pulled inspiration from all around the world from from South Africa from London from the Middle East all of these places that she was traveling to for work and she also discovered that she had a really innate sense for flavors she knew how to put things together she just sort of knew what would go together, what flavor combinations would go together. Um, is that why you call her a genius? Yeah, she is. And, and she sort of just knows, like, she just has these tips and tricks that just come so naturally to her. Like, I always think, you know, in another life, if my mom didn't become an engineer, she would have been an amazing cookbook author, recipe writer, recipe developer. I'm just <laughs> trying to give her that second life. What was it like... Uh testing recipes with her. I mean, you said, you know, after growing up and having her cook for you your whole life, you finally got to cook for her. Yeah, that was that was a really difficult month. I <laughs> I feel like whenever people ask me about it, they're like, "Oh, it must have been such an amazing bonding experience." It I seems mean, like it would be, yeah. It it was, but it it was it was super painful. Like I would wake up really early in the morning, um, go grocery shopping, cook a bunch of recipes, come home, my mom would critique all of the recipes and then we would make three more dishes together and I would edit those recipes and then we would do another tasting and then she would sit down and write more recipes while I help my dad do the dishes. And you know, there were so many times when my mom would sort of fidget with a recipe and wouldn't tell me so I couldn't note it down and, and I would yell at her. There were times where we'd sort of be just like yelling at each other and we'd have to go into our corners and cool off. <laughs> but I mean, the good thing is like, it's my mom. So it's like when you're, when your writing partner is your mom, you know that like, even if you're yelling at each other, it's all going to be okay in like five <laughs> minutes. Um, Were there things you learned about your mom during that, that time period that you didn't really know before? Uh, I mean, <laughs> whenever I would complain about having to spend all day cooking or, or having to put out like a, a, a meal on the table, she would remind me that 
that she would get home from work at when we were growing up, she would get home from work at six and we'd demand that dinner be on the table by six thirty. And so <laughs> she had to put out what I did in five hours and thirty minutes. And I sort of gained a newfound appreciation and just like additional shame for how much I complained <laughs> when I was growing up. That must have been really satisfying for her. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think it was. <laughs> um, so when does your book come out? It comes out in spring of 2019. And they're all recipes created by your mom? Uh, a few of them are from family members. Um, we are super close with our family um, on both my mom's and my dad's side. So I wanted to to get just a couple, like five or six recipes that really um, meant a lot to me and meant a lot to my mom. But... 90% are from my mother. That is, I mean, it, I know you said that it was difficult, but like what a lovely thing that you get to do and own and give to your mother and have. Yeah. I mean, as I've been writing this book, weirdly people have been mailing me like their family cookbooks. They're Aww. not officially published, but they're just like internal cookbooks. That's and I think that's, that's so important to sort of keep a log of your family recipes because otherwise those just, you know, get lost through generations. And these are really amazing heirloom dishes. Yeah, um, I think you're doing what a lot of people wish they could do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break and listen to a commercial, and then we'll be back with Priya Krishna. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. I'm in studio with Priya Krishna. She's a food writer and the author of the forthcoming cookbook, Indian-ish. We've been talking about her mom, who is the inspiration for her cookbook. Um, and you told us a little bit about your mom and a little bit about your dad, who both emigrated to the United States from India, and you grew up in Texas as a first-generation American Indian. And you also talked a little bit about um, how your writing has been kind of inspired by the election and how you seek more to uh, highlight stories of, of women and people of color and immigrant communities. And, you know, it's just, I know you said you didn't have a very typical experience being in Texas, but like, are there any, like, what are your, what are your thoughts about ha being from Texas and being, you know, having been raised by two immigrants and being a woman? Like, I mean, how does that feel at this point in, in the United States and how does it feel for your parents? I mean, 
It's sort of ever since the election, I can't. It's sort of this deep, constant anxiety that I feel. And it's like you just feel like unsettled always and you can't put your finger on why. And then you realize that it's just literally because of who is in the White House. And Mm -hmm. I realized that, you know, after during the Obama years, I really took government for granted and just assumed that they were on my side and, you know, didn't didn't think about the fact that I was from Texas and that I could make political change, but I I have just like totally reframed my thinking. Um, so I'm still, I, I spend like half the year in Texas, half the year here. So I'm, I'm technically still a Texas resident. So I've sort of tried to use my Texas status as much as possible. Like I am the person like bothering Ted Cruz and John Cornyn like every single day to the point where (laughs) their staffers like know the sound of my voice. Um, My aunt recently uh, launched this initiative. She's a pediatrician living in Texas called SAVE, which is called South Asian Voter Empowerment. Um, Basically like hoping to get out the vote to South Asians who make up an enormous part of the Texas population, but a lot of them don't turn out to vote. Like, you know, they always say if immigrants in Texas voted, it would be definitively a blue state. Hmm. So I can't even picture that. Yeah. And so I feel like the election was just sort of this huge wake up call that there was just a lot that I could be doing that I, that I wasn't doing. And for me that started with my writing, but it's also just sort of these like daily forms of resistance, whether it's sort of calling out intolerance when you see it, like bothering Ted Cruz as much as I can. Um, <laughs> someone you know, got to. <laughs> when someone asks me to go to a protest and someone asks me to go to a fundraiser, I'll go, I'll like donate, even if all I can donate is $10 because you know, I just like want to feel like I'm doing my part. And, you know, I feel like post-election, it's really easy to feel um, complacent. And there's definitely times when I feel really complacent. But I think if it's just like something that's constantly on your mind and whenever you are asked to take action, like you you take action most of those times, I think that can be really powerful. If if everyone did that, you know, it would be amazing. I So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated. And I... It makes me like sad that I wasn't more actively involved before, but I'm sort of trying to trying to change that, and and it starts with 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 my job and, and my writing, and 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 I hope that I can that I can help make change through that small way. Do you get the sense that you have other family members or friends back in Texas who feel similarly? Like maybe next time things could be different. Yeah, I mean, seriously, like my. Aunt, um, I call her uh, Singi the mommy. That's just like what Indians uh, call uh, their familiar relations. But like she was totally outraged after the election. And, you know, she is a, a doctor in Texas and she has certainly received, certainly been discriminated against. She's been like the person on the plane that like, is there a doctor here? Mm, and she's yeah. raised her hand and they've been like, no, we want like a real doctor. Oh, And that's awful. And that's just like when you remember the realities of the fact that you live in Texas. And I feel like for a lot of us Indians living in Texas, we existed within this bubble that didn't happen to us a lot. And after the election, my entire family is just like so much more aware. Um, I I see us all sort of becoming really politically active and we're all really close. So it's just exciting to 
to see us all like mobilizing together, like the day of the women's march, we were all marching um, in different places across the country and we were all texting each other photos. And it was just really um, empowering. And I feel really fortunate that I'm not one of those families where it's like my parents voted for Trump and we're really, you know, just really distant. We can't go for holidays. I, I feel at the very least comforted by the fact that my family is like very, very unified in our beliefs. Yeah. Do, is it hard for your parents as as people who emigrated here? You know, I I thought it would be be harder for them, but I think I think there's this tendency with the older generation to just I feel like my parents aren't as quite as invested as I am. It's a sort of same way when like when someone appropriates Indian culture, I get really angry about it, but my parents are like, but hey, at least they're acknowledging Indian culture. Like back mm. in our day, like yeah. it wasn't even in any part resembling the mainstream. And so I just feel like their perspective is really different. And like, you know, my parents are definitely, I, I, sometimes I feel like my parents aren't even like aware of when people discriminate against them because it's just something they grew up with. They just Like they're so desensitized to it. Yeah, yeah. In, in their mind. Um, but but I don't want it to be that way for me. I, I want to I be able to call things out. And I feel like my parents and I are having those conversations more than we ever have before. I mean, that's a nice yeah. silver lining-esque thing to come out of all Definitely. of Definitely. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Tell us more about where we can find your writing and I you have a column for Bon Appetit yes yes I have a column called Indianish and Bon Appetit where I'll be um sort of sneak previewing some of the recipes some of the tips and some of the off cuts that didn't make it into the book um I have (laughs) it's like a nice meat metaphor (laughs) (laughs) um so the first column was on how to make chai it's way easier than you think and the next next one is about how I discovered that the instant pot is the best place to make dal with a bunch of a little like choose your own adventure chart for how to make your own dal in an instant pot. And that probably will come out soon. So I'm excited. I um, loved, I should have mentioned this. I loved your piece about um, Urvashi Picha, who wrote, who's, who's writing an Indian pot book for Houghton Mifflin, in fact, um, who is also publishing your book, but she's like the Indian pot queen at this point. You wrote a great piece about her um, in The New Yorker. Yes, she, that piece was, I, when I pitched it, I I don't think I realized the extent to which people, her fans adored her. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I sort of wrote this, I realized she had, she had created like a counterculture of, of Indian, of Indian instant pot loving cooks. Yeah, she really tapped into something there. Yeah. Yeah. And it, actually when I was reading it and reading more about you, I was wondering if you were reminded at all about of your mother when, when you came across her and were talking to her because there's something so like entrepreneurial about her um, and enterprising and then the way she's been able to use food as a way to kind of like launch um, and I guess in her case sort of like a second career for her. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I They're, they're pretty different. I more relate Urvashi to, to my aunt who's the one who introduced me to her because, you know, Sometimes I feel like my mother can be a bit of a, a masochist when it comes to cooking. Like she likes when it takes a little more time and requires more mm. finesse and technique because that's just, you know, it just it, it means only she can do it. And, um, you know, the most of the recipes I included in the book are the ones that are like the quick 20 minute weeknight recipes. Yeah. But um, 
I feel like my mom is not, she's not a shortcut person. Whenever I try <laughs> to introduce, like there are shortcuts and these recipes are easy and accessible, but there are certain things where my mom was like, you just cannot, like you have to roast your spices before you add them in. You just cannot skip that step and things like that. Whereas like, I think, um, Orvashi was able to sort of make, um, this, use the instant pot to make Indian cooking really accessible. I feel like my mom is, is going to make Indian cooking accessible, but she's probably not like the, the gadget cook. That's probably yeah. not her niche, but, um, Orvashi is actually from Dallas and I told her next time I'm in Dallas, me and my aunt who introduced me to, to her book and her should all get together and like have, have butter chicken over lunch. You should, you should, <laughs> you should meet her actually. I got to meet her recently and she is a hoot. So yeah, yeah, she's a firecracker. Um, well tell us where to find you on social media so we can keep up with your, sure. With your um, you can follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at PK gourmet. Um, and then you can catch my byline in the New York Times. Bon appetit. No big deal. New, New York Times. <laughs> a few others. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. It's I real feel, cool. Yeah. I, it's, it's definitely really cool. It never, the, like, the glimmer of the New York Times never fades. It never should. <laughs> um, and your book is, is Fall 19? Spring 2019. Spring 2019. Yep. Okay. Well, I am very excited to thank follow the, you. the journey of it and see the final result. Um, Priya, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really lovely to chat with you and best of luck with, with all of your endeavors and your book coming out. Well, thanks for having me. You're welcome and happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> you too. It's a very romantic conversation. <laughs> Not really. Um, but I did enjoy it a lot. And thank you out there for listening. Check us online at heritageradionetwork.org or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And we'll see you back here next week, Wednesdays, 6 p.m., 6.30 p.m. EST. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.